Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I am your host, Ian, joined by co-hosts Megan and Emily. Ladies, how do we feel today? We feel great. (laughs) We are living life, living large. Did anybody else laugh their way through the opening section of this of this reading oh my for this goodness. week? I sure did. I did for one. Okay, so so background, and I'm assuming that I mean, listeners, we have spent a lot of time comparing the book to the musical. It's unavoidable. The musical is a cultural phenomenon. The book maybe not quite so much in our era, at least. But we're going to do some of that to start this out because there's a scene in the musical <laughs> that is a little bit of a neck rubbing uh, chuckle, a rueful chuckle yeah, as viewers look back on their teenage. Romantic inclinations, I think is probably the fair way to put it. We have Cosette and Marius falling falling in love at first sight, literally. And because it's a musical, they shorten that process up. It takes one uh, beautiful song. Or do they? Or do they? Because, (laughs) as it turns out, it's just as fast and cute, but also a little ridiculous in the book. Am I right? (laughs) Yeah, but I feel like the big question we have to ask today is, is it ridiculous to us with our modern sensibilities? Or did he intend it to be ridiculous? Because I'm halfway convinced that he is a romantic and he really means us to take this seriously. Right, right. I mean, that's. I think that's the question is, um, on the one hand, he does a brilliant job of caricaturing, if that's a word I can use, a young couple's budding teenage romance with all of the angst and all of the passion and all of the changeableness and all those things. On the other hand, well, I know where the story ends. I know where this is going. And it is, in fact, going to turn into a long-term well, relationship. So all of the things that Maria says, like, I think that that's the, that it Hugo might be the voice that. of Hugo. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is all something we have to talk about at length, but like, it might be the voice of Hugo speaking through Marius. That's you mean an option. The, the letter about <laughs> the love. love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's both. Maybe he's poking fun at them, but in a loving way, and then still using them to speak what he means. The line that precedes the ridiculous love letter itself. Cosette is playing piano, and she's like alone and singing and playing piano, and it's the evening. And she's playing and the music is going out into the garden. And he says, he, she's playing the chorus from Euryanthe, something like that. Hunters wandering in the woods, perhaps the most beautiful piece of music ever written. And I don't, <laughs> I don't think he means to be ironic. I think that he is, he is laying down his personal favorite song as the greatest piece of music ever written. And that's like the romantic foundation for the mood of the garden scene, like the perfect atmosphere for two young lovers. I do think that maybe there's there's a large part of him that buys into this scene. I think that you're right. I think that you are. And the fact that they don't, when they do finally talk, that they don't, the last thing that they do is exchange names. 
Like <laughs> the last thing. Like, oh man, that's rough. <laughs> yeah. But also, like, I think that he's saying something like that's the least important detail in this situation or, is their names. It's the is culmination it of all of the the I don't know, the idealistic love of the idea, right? So Marius is loving what did he call her before? It was like Helga or Ursula. <laughs> Ursula. <laughs> yeah, he called her Ursula before. And now he finally has a name, but it's I think you're right. It's the least important part. He already knows who she is and he's loved her for so long. And it feels ridiculous to me. I can't talk about well, it. This is their first ever conversation. Ever. I mean they've never yeah. spoken to one another. But Hugo's thing with names, like the names are like a facade. They're not always as important, like Jean Valjean always changing his name. Like there might be something going on there with the fact that it culminates in a naming of each other, but that's the last detail that's necessary. I don't know. Uh-huh. You know, there are some other details that are necessary. I mean, <laughs> yeah. if you think about it, the first thing that Marius says to Cosette to her face sounds terrifying. Did you guys read this with any uh-huh. like, feeling of stalkers and stuff? He says, um, I've come here all the time. Here are all the things, all the ways that I've found you. I've followed you. What was I to do? And then you disappeared. Now I come here and I look up at your windows. Don't worry. You might be scared, but I, I come often. I listen to you through the shutters. It can't harm you, can it? You're my angel. Let me come sometimes. I think I'm going to die. <laughs> I think I'm going to die. Like Phantom of the Opera vibes right there. No kidding. (laughs) Well, and to jump over to Cosette for just a second, I still, I mean, Emily, you've been talking for a few episodes now about whether Cosette is going to be a real fleshed out character or if she is just going to be a placeholder for love, some sort of, yeah, some sort of, (laughs) of Dante and Beatrice kind of situation. And I'm not sure we have an answer to that yet. Although I think Hugo is also asking that question um, to himself as he writes. He's like, oh, no. Oh, no, I didn't give anybody anything to grab onto. Okay, what can we do? What can we do? Here's something we can do. This is a detail that we get about Cosette in the first chapter. Actually, by nature, Cosette was not easily startled. There was in her veins the blood of the gypsy (laughs) and the barefoot adventurous. It must be remembered she was more lark than dove. She was wild and brave at heart. (laughs) I haven't seen any evidence of that. No, there's no evidence no. of that. And this is like the, the blurb on the back of a romance right. novel. No, yeah, it's a bodice. For like a romance line. novel heroine. Right, exactly. And he just put he stacks all those details together. If there's one thing we know about Hugo, it's that he loves characterization. He spends page on page on page describing Marius. We have chapters in a row of descript minute descriptions of every single thought going through Marius's head. We've been talking well for nigh these many years about Tolstoy and his ability to draw a believable character, be it a female character or a male character. And I wonder if Hugo does not share that same gift, that his male characters, given that he is a man, are well-drawn and well-conceived and three-dimensional. But so far, the female characters are more, well, they're more Beatrice-like. They're more representations of ideas than they are fleshed out human beings. Right. Mm-hmm. That's an RDS is bad mother right. in all caps. Fontaine is, mm-hmm. you know, like representation of womanhood scorned and right. and left in the gutter, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I think you might be right. That that checks out. Well, so far, the only character, I mean, I just thought of that at this very moment. So this is by no means well-developed <laughs> argument. But so far, the only character I can think of who stands up to a little criticism is Eponine. She's got a little bit more going on. Yeah. 
in terms of her yeah. unexpected responses to situations and combination of depravity and goodness. So she's the one. I can see why we like her the most in the musical even. She's got the most to hang on to. No, you're right. I think so. But I wonder if that is down to him, to Hugo's ability to draw a female character, or if he just sort of thought, okay, let's take cookie cutter down on her luck womanhood, like from Fontaine, and combine it with the gamin. Right. Right. With with Gavroche. Right. Yeah. And see what happens. <laughs> and so then we get Eponine. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I don't know, man. What did you guys make of the fact that Marius has been madly in love with Cosette this whole time, but Cosette could have taken his cousin and she <laughs> hangs she hangs on a he like goes to great lengths to explain that this was like the the great moment where she could have made the wrong decision. I don't know. I mean, that felt a little flat to me, and it seems to be counter to his real purposes here. I mean, if he wants us to take these two seriously, he sure goes to some lengths before they come together. To convince us that Cosette's affection isn't really moored in anything. Mm, I don't know. That seems a little strong. That does well, seem I'm strong. fond of putting things strongly. <laughs> it seems to me more that she is <laughs> she's poorly conceived. She's very a shallow character. There's nothing in her that he's already stated that could be like a lodestone and hold him to his purpose. When he talks about Cosette, it she's just well, she's wishy washy. I don't know. I don't love her at this point. No, me neither. Emily, what do you think? I I don't know. I want to give him more credit than that. I don't know. But you don't want to give her more credit than that. <laughs> just, just Hugo. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's maybe we just haven't come far enough. I don't know. Well, we are almost at page one thousand. <laughs> so it's far. It's far. We've come far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's a Do you find Cosette compelling? Um, I know not as a flesh and blood person. I think that this is more of a romantic. She's an idea. I think a lot of his characters are like that. They they are ideas, and that's a style. And it's a little Dickensian, even. And we've compared him to Dickens before yeah. too. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a valid comparison. Um, it's like an Amy Dorrit kind of a situation. Yeah, it's not necessarily like a. What am I trying to say? It's not like to call Hugo a b- bad author <laughs> to say that he's doing this. He's just participating in a different kind of genre than, for example, to- Tolstoy with Anna mm-hmm. Karenina or something yeah. like that. Tolstoy's being I more think of that's a realist. totally true. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, and also, I think he's in on the joke. Like, I don't think he's blindly participating in that genre. Like, look at the chapter heading. The one, and this is the chapter when they have their conversation, their first conversation. The chapter heading is the elderly are made to go out when convenient. <laughs> I think he might be chuckling along with us at the way he is doing this. Yeah. So when Megan said that it's both that he is both laughing at this young love and taking it seriously, uh-huh. I think there's something to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's a line in the beginning of the chapter, a heart beneath a stone. Where this is the voice of Hugo. No, no, this is nope. This is the first line of Marius's letter. But I also believe it's the voice of Hugo. He says, the reduction of the universe to a single being, the expansion of a single being into God, this is love. 
Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it's got all the tone of a young man in love. It's overblown and dramatic. And you can imagine him fainting on his Victorian lady couch, right? <laughs> but at the same time, this singular picture of love reducing to one person and expanding the whole universe all at the same time, giving you perspective to see the whole world with benevolence is absolutely something he's been arguing all story long, that this, in spite of all of the suffering in the world, is the reason to live, to participate in this kind of divine love. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely. Yeah, what do you guys, if we take this chapter, this is in in book five, chapter four, A Heart Beneath a Stone, what do you guys take of his philosophy of love if we're going to assume that this is the voice of Hugo? My first response was to be a little uncomfortable, like when Tolstoy said, love is God instead of God is love. However, now, like I literally just had this thought when you were reading that line, uh, the expansion of a single being into God. That sounds dangerous, right? To say like, my lover is God. That's a very like Byronic sort of statement, except for it's also a very like existential sort of statement. I'm thinking of, is it? The philosopher Levinas, who said that when you look into another being's eyes, that's the closest you come to glimpsing God. Yeah, absolutely. Uh It feels a little bit like that. I think he goes that direction with it. On page 926, he says, what love begins can only be finished by God. And a little further down, nothing is enough for love. We have happiness. We wish for paradise. We have paradise. We wish for heaven. So there's this idea of the more you love a person, like a beatific vision, it draws you closer and closer to the ultimate expression of love, which is God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, he talks about stars. And I don't know what you guys think, but I'm thinking that the stars are representative. And I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying not to take <laughs> this from great. the musical. <laughs> but I think that uh, it, in the book, it holds up that the stars are representative of a clean kind of purity like um not just law but like even god love they're ideal the stars are ideals and that's not to discount them they're just far off and cold and harsh and so he says you look at a star for two reasons because it is luminous and because it is impenetrable you have at your side a softer radiance and a greater mystery woman so you can the lover looks at the stars, but and they're luminous, but they're impenetrable. And so is the woman, but she's softer. The human being by your side is the better entrance into love, God, etc. Than the stars. This is another situation where I think Bubliel and Schoenberg nailed it in the way that they wrote the musical. We get the line that hangs over the whole thing is to love another person is to see the face of God, which we're discovering is an excellent and pithy summary gloss yeah. of this book. <laughs> yeah. And melodically pleasing too. Well, shall we move on to Gavrash with whom we spend the large majority of our reading for the week? Yes, please. I was delighted by this passage. Did you guys like this section? Yeah, I really had a good time. First, though, I was crushed in my spirit at how sad the story of his little brothers turned out to be. So it turns out that the Tenardiers had two more sons after Gavrash and that they sold them. (laughs) Yeah, because having five kids, (laughs) it was a lot. That's a quote from the book. (laughs) 
<laughs> Did you think there were a lot of there were a lot of moments where some modern like modern American English idioms <laughs> snuck into the translation? Yeah. In this section? I thought that too, yeah. It seemed well, I, I can imagine with French with all of its idioms, the translators forced to rely on some uh, idiomatic like expressions idiom. of our own. Yeah. English uh-huh. idioms, yeah. yeah. It was a lot. <laughs> it's my favorite line in the book so far. <laughs> to have five children, two girls and three boys. It was a lot. It was a lot. So I am, a, he never comes out and says it, but I'm assuming that the two boys that Gavroche picks up on the street are his brothers. Yes. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there, so do you remember, and he, he's, it's very Dickens again, he's weaving all of the different plot lines together. So you remember in the discussion of Marius's grandfather, there was a woman that he had had a dalliance with who had a, a couple of his children, or it wasn't sure that they were his children, mm-hmm. but having bastards and supporting them out of your largesse was actually kind of respected in his mind. It's from an earlier era of French aristocracy, but it's one that he's keeping alive in his insistence that the that his own time was the best time. And so he's proud to support these little bastards because it makes him feel good about himself. And this woman, it turns out, lost both of his actual sons in a cholera epidemic of some kind, a Mm -hmm. cholera outbreak. Yeah. And so, but she doesn't want to lose the income that they provided. And so she and the Tenardius are in cahoots and she's like, well, I'll take your, I'll take your boys and I'll pay you some of what he pays me. So it turns out that Marius's father has been supporting Gavroche's little brothers or Marius's grandfather has been supporting Gavroche's little brothers. That is wild. All right. I did not get that. I'm really glad you explained it. But it's a grift though. Right. And so eventually (laughs) they get found out and this new mama and papa for the little boys are carted off to prison. And they are turned out onto the street. They're literally in the backyard playing when their parents are arrested or their parents, their quasi parents are arrested and they try to get back into their house and the doors are all locked and the place is empty on a winter day. And that's that. I mean, you can hear Hugo again in a very Dickensian way looking at the society and looking at the world and saying, how can this be? These boys are five and seven. This is unacceptable. (laughs) And I'm with him. I mean, it was really sobering to read this section. What did you guys think? Well, I totally agree. hundred percent. But I also was struck by the, oh, like the repetition of the scene. Like the structure of the scene is exactly the same as Gavroche deciding to come home one night and being told Mm -hmm. that his family doesn't live here anymore. They're all in prison. And he basically bucks up and goes off to keep warm under some bridge because this is what it is to be a kid in Paris, you know, to be a gamin. So I thought it was delightful that that repetition immediately led us right back to Gavroche, who that scene reminded me of immediately. As soon as they Mm. turned the little boys out, I thought, oh, well, Gavroche is coming. And in the very next scene, here he is to share his wisdom for how to survive as a gamin. There's something, and I don't know how to put this as a question. I wish that I could, but there's something about maturity a kind of maturity that you get living on the streets, maybe, that makes Gavroche feel like more of a grown-up than Marius, Oh yeah, for example. And I wonder what Hugo is doing there. What do you guys think? Well, that's, yeah, and that's a, just to call back a previous episode, I think that's a structurally sound comment because the chapter, or the, the part, the book, Marius, began with a meditation on Gavroche. So yeah, that's I right. I think that he really doesn't tend to. Well, and at the end of today's section, he is in a Gavroche is in a crowd of fully grown men who are thieves and wastrels, and he gets them out of a tight spot and then says to them, a kid like me is a man. 
and men like you are kids. Yeah, that's right. So this is absolutely a meditation on what makes you mature. What is it really that that gives you what is it that that is maturity? Gravity, compassion, authority? I don't know. Well, suffering, right? Is is probably got to be the missing ingredient, I would think, Emily. Well, I'm just thinking in Marius's love letter, doesn't he say something like he to throw off childishness in love? But he wants to retain the child in love. And he also calls love a suffering and a a torture. And so I wonder if there is a parallel there uh, that this is the child. That's satisfying because one of the things Gavroche says, he says a lot of really beautiful things in and around the corners and even just in his tone of bearing up under suffering. But one of the things is if I had kids like this, if I was a father, I would hug them tighter than this. So yep. mm-hmm. maybe one of the key elements of maturity is loving loving your neighbor and those that you're responsible for. And all of these grown-ups in his life are twisted and stunted and broken for not loving. The parallels are everywhere. I think it's the stitching. It's the back of the tapestry that we're looking at that's really interesting. But but the stitching really holds together. I mean, we've got Gavroche is a little Valjean. Right. I mean, Valjean spends his entire life under the wheel of society being broken over and over and over again. And the product of all of that is to fit him precisely for the role of Cosette's protector and father figure. We have a little mini version of that with Gavroche, whose life has been one endless string of abandonments. And it fits him precisely for the role of caring for his younger brothers, even if he doesn't know that that's what they are. He also that's a cool comparison that he is like Jean Valjean, because we see Jean Valjean, his response to suffering all his life and being under the wheel of society, as you have said, Ian, is to give away everything he has. The spirit of generosity and looking out for people. Gavroche, in this scene, gives away every good thing that he has he has fought, you know, fought from the hands of Providence. He gives away the warm shawl to a girl whose skirt is too too short. He gives away the the neighborhood that he lives. He tells somebody where it is and then draws the boys into it, gives away his anonymity. And there's a lot of security in being secret as a little boy like him. But he gives that away really freely, gives away his blanket. I mean, everything he has, he's proud of it, but he's not holding on to it for any kind of security for himself, which reminded me of Jean Valjean as well. What do you think, Em? And it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, he... There's the freedom that he has as a gamin. It's uh, he really lives by the hand of providence, and and it's just a beautiful picture of someone who knows that. It, I don't know. His hands are open, right? He takes what he can get and then gives it away when he sees that he can help someone else because because he's not precious about it. He knows the next thing will come along. There was a little bit of. Did you guys ever read the borrowers? Yeah. Do you remember how much fun it was as a kid to imagine them using teeny tiny things, using things. And I think the, the heart of it is using things that were f- made for a different purpose <laughs> for your own purposes. <laughs> yes. Which is, I mean, it's, it's a little boy with a stick that he's turning into a weapon and it's, it's that same impulse. Right. And it was a whole story about it. So I had those kinds of feelings reading about Gavrash's hideout because this has got to be the coolest fort of all time. Right. He's so it's this, it's the statue that Napoleon commissioned. Importantly. Yes. Thematically, right? And I want to get into all the thematic implications of this 
but it's the statue and it's it was never finished. It's, it wasn't made bronze yet. It's just plaster and wood and it's been abandoned and nobody even thinks about it anymore. They walk by it without seeing it. But there's a crack in the belly of this hollow elephant and Gavrosh can, can slither up into there and he's made himself a nest. But here's the thing that, that was fascinating to me. I, I could tell that Hugo took pleasure in coming up with this device. He's like, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Here's a hideout. This is going to be awesome. And he's a fort builder because he's he was at once a little boy. And so it's really great, except it is full of, I think the word he used was hundreds <laughs> of rats that as soon as the lights go out, swarm you and try and eat you. There might be no better. I think it's the best metaphor for the life of the command that he's given us among dozens of other really, really great ones. I think this has to be the best metaphor. The city of Paris is this elephant and it is full of wonder. It's full of nooks and crannies for you to hide in. It's full of places to play. I mean, Gavrosh gives the little boys a list of things they're going to do in the good weather. We're going to run along this train track buck naked. It drives the washerwomen crazy. (laughs) Right. We're going, we're going to go swimming, like all the things we're going to do. The city is amazing. Meanwhile, if they don't get inside, they're going to freeze to death and and they're going to be devoured basically by the city. And here he is in this perfect little picture of what Paris is for the gamin. As long as you have your wits about you and as long as you have the necessary protection, you can make it through, but everything is constantly trying to eat you when you're not looking. I mean, it's brutal. Again, though, I think, well, I think two things. One, that image that you're that you're drawing of this being like Paris and all the rats being all of the the suffering that's that's trying to devour you all the time. The light keeps it at bay. As long as there's light, you're all right. And as long as when the lights go out, you're holding someone's hand, then you're okay. There's there's relationship. But there's also this idea of providence, just like that scene with Fontaine that I always go back to in my mind. She's at her very lowest and darkest, but even there, someone sees her in her suffering. There's a a providential presence that Hugo doesn't let us forget about. Here in The Elephant, this is an idea of Napoleon's that Hugo says was disdained by men, but taken up by God. So even the elephant, full of rats though it is, is providentially given to the gamin by God, who is still present, even in this scene, which I think is is necessary to trace, at least for me, that that makes this book not horribly depressing, which it could be. Like, not for one moment have I felt deeply depressed, even though I'm not sure that this could get worse as a picture of humanity. Emily, what do you think? I was just thinking that the elephant is just like it's a metaphor for Paris. It's a metaphor for the 19th century mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. That Napoleon provides quote unquote what he what he has to provide and on the one hand it ends up being made of wood and plaster instead of porphyry and bronze and gold it's not the high quality that he imagined that it would be and yet it's providential it it protects the people in some way so that the history of the century although imperfect is also necessary to to whatever to the goodness ahead in some way. Yeah. I think that's really well said. I mean, what a, what a metaphor, what a symbol, right? Right. It's transition from metaphor to symbol. <laughs> I think this elephant, I think we could examine any part of it and find a tie into Hugo's characterization of Paris in this era. what do you guys think of the little nest that Gavroche builds? I think it was really, to me, it was shocking how long he concealed the rats 
in the description. I mean, the, the rats really got to me, you guys. They really got to <laughs> my skin was crawling because he so he gets up in there and you're like, oh, good. They're inside. There's no rain. There's no wind. This is awesome. He's got a little light. This is even better. And there's a there's a little moment where it's like the shadows sort of dance away into the corners, but he doesn't go quite all the way into saying these were living shadows. These are actually rats that are hiding from the light. And then he, you get to his bed and there are like stones all around it. And he describes this canopy made of the the metal frame that the plaster was poured around. It's like wi- a wire canopy, like chicken wire is the, the image I get made of copper that's over his bed. And you're like, oh, that's weird. I mean, it's a funny decoration. A little princess bed for Givrosh out in the out in the cold. <laughs> and then as soon as the lights go out, you realize, oh, he built himself a cage not to keep him in, but to keep them out. Uh, (laughs) i mean it's kind of on the nose but the fact that he took all of those materials from the zoo Mm -hmm. these these belong to the beasts that the animals are getting better treated than he is yeah yeah they they, wow i I didn't even notice that you're right well yeah he says something like he, he says we take it from the animals and then he immediately says we climb over the wall and we don't care about what the government has to say about it yeah, and his even he's talking to the animals as he takes their stuff because he's a human being, for goodness sake, and he needs this. But he doesn't say, this is for me. He says, don't worry, it's for the elephant. Yeah. <laughs> well, because he's still a little boy, dang it. I mean, that's... If your heart isn't broken by Gavrash, you're not paying close enough attention. Okay, so on to our, our final section of the reading, which is the escape of... What, did they, what does he call them? This is a group of criminals... The criminal underground, mm-hmm. and there was they had a title. There was a name for this little gang, and I can't remember what it was. Do either of you remember? No, I don't. Okay, well, it's the gang with Babette and and all these other. The band uh, is back together. Montparnasse. <laughs> the band, yeah, the band's getting back together, despite the fact that they're all in prison, and they mount an escape. And it was kind of a perilous escape. It's in the middle of the night and it's dark and it's rainy and and there's thunder and lightning and stuff like that. But they all managed to escape. And Tenardier gets stuck because he's old on, on a top of a wall. <laughs> on a, on trechipus. a treacherous precipice. A treacherous. A treacherous. <laughs> <laughs> so he's stuck on it. In, and Hugo says it's 10, 10 inches wide. And he's just laying there totally numb. And he finally gets the attention of the guys down below that are there to see if he escaped as well. And they realize the only way they're going to get him down is if they can find someone small enough to to shimmy up this drain pipe to get to him or a chimney flue or something like that. And so they go get Gavrosh. Given all the conversation that we've been having about Gavrosh being the protector and love being the binding force and everyone sticking together, what do you make of the fact that even these criminals live by a kind of code? He says... These four men, with that loyalty criminals show and never abandoning each other, had been prowling all night around the forest at whatever risk in hope of seeing Tenardier. There's like loyalty and devotion even among the worst of the worst in our story. I noticed also, and this just to add to that, not to answer your question, but that the loyalty, the sense of loyalty and the the true at the heart, the characters who are truest at the heart are the younger ones. So Montparnasse is possibly one of the scariest of this group, but he is younger than all the rest of them. He's like a, a teenager who's vicious and a murderer. But he is the one who, when the rest of them begin to get cold feet and think about running away at the end of the night, he says to them, you don't leave friends in difficulty. So the source of that loyalty comes from the younger ones, which 
puts me in mind of Gavroche as well, being the truest of all of them. Yeah. Montparnasse was also the one who got lectured at by Jean Valjean. And he mentions it in this section. He yeah. does? To oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. He says, I got a lecture and yeah. a purse to boot. <laughs> a sermon and a purse, but I, but now I have nothing. And Gavroche says, except the lecture. Except <laughs> <laughs> the sermon. Still have the sermon. <laughs> <laughs> so they go get Gavroche. He comes immediately and shimmies up and realizes it's his father, whom he probably has little affection for, but does it anyway. And then sits there unacknowledged until he realizes they aren't going to pay him. And so he says, all right, I got to go take care of my kids. And scuttles off back to the elephants. (laughs) Yeah, also his father's kid. I mean, the dramatic irony here is perhaps a little on the nose, but but nonetheless powerful. He has come to break his his father out of prison. His father does not recognize him. And then he goes back to care for himself and his father's cast off children. Something is wrong with the world. But not with Gavroche. I think the most moving part of this section for me is watching Gavroche be unspoiled. In the face of all of this, there's something about the heart of the gamin that is completely innocent and pure, even in the face of all of this. When there's thunder and lightning, he says he's basically clapping his hands and praising the Lord at the top of his lungs. When he realizes that his father who abandoned him is in need of his help, he could very easily say, I'm not doing this. You, you're the worst, not this dude. Guy. Not saving this guy. And then skip off into the night because who cares? I mean, he's been completely abandoned. He doesn't owe this guy anything. And instead, his response is, wait a minute, that's my father. Well, never mind. And he, in purity and innocence, saves this guy's life because a life is a life. Not to get anything from it, just because. Where do you think that comes from? He has hardly had any examples of that in his life. Yeah, that's that mm. is a really good question, yeah, and is. I want to I want to make it a little bit broader. Even like that whole, that spirit of the gamin is has become a symbol for us, right? And I think maybe this is this is what the, I mean. the The cover of the novel is Cosette, obviously, but the the miserable les miserables are the abandoned children, right? They they are the symbol of humanity in dire straits for the whole novel. Are they innocent, or are they not? Are they noble, or are they not? Where do they get their instincts? Because like you said, they have not they have not had this modeled for them. Are we looking at the Imago Dei in in these little children? Discuss. Or is this romanticism and the you know, romanticism posits that human nature is perfect until sullied by society. So is this a Christian principle that Hugo is playing out, or is this the theme of romanticism rearing its head? Right. It's a good well, question. I don't. I don't know that it can be the theme of romanticism because society is doing everything it possibly can to sell these children, and it's not working. If we're to believe him about the spirit of Gavroche and his little buddies, maybe they just aren't old enough for it to have worked. Well, yet, yeah, it has. But- I think it really it has something to do with them being children because we're in the section on the gamin. We're told that they're going to grow up to be like. Tenardier. Montparnasse and then Tenardier. Yeah, it's, I, I think, watching the age of the characters, you can see them being sullied as they go. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't, what is it that changes over time? There's just something, there's a spirit of innocence in the child that must be kicked out of them by society, which is a little romantic. Well, it hasn't been kicked out of Eponine yet. But she's not much older than Gavroche. I suppose that's true. And she's the oldest, right? Yes, I think she is. And she's Cosette's age? 
An alternative reading is that these children, in particular the Thenardier children, have been so cruelly beaten by <laughs> metaphorically by their parents that the suffering has purified spirit, them yeah. in some way, which is another theme of the novel. Yes, but suffering with something else, right? It, it, the suffering isn't what made Valjean pure. It was the forgiveness of the bishop mm-hmm. on his response to that suffering. So it can't be suffering all by itself, I don't think. And the same thing with Cosette. Her her purity and her happiness, her whole personality isn't rooted in just the suffering of her youth. It's rooted in the hand of God descending to pick up her bucket in the woods in the in the dark, right? So there's got to be something else that inserts itself in order to to purify and cleanse these children. It's tricky, though, because with Gavroche, he's actually described as a providential force himself. From the perspective of the little boys, yes, but he is called a hand of providence who gives them food and lodging. So he also relies on providence himself. And I'm wondering if that's why the child is is better off than the adult, because they haven't Mm -hmm. had time to think I have to provide for myself, that they instinctively rely on the resources that come their direction Mm -hmm. and credit providence with the resources that they do find i mean that the idea of the thunderstorm again he instinctively says this is better than theater bravo god you know yeah that was such a great moment i love that thanks for the show god right well you guys great discussion thank you for your insights i love how this novel is going this is really great i can feel it beginning to boil and i can't wait to see how it turns out in the next oh i don't know what 200 and 300 300 pages i don't know how many pages we have left but we're only 300 pages from the end you guys were making such good progress (laughs) am i am i overly optimistic emily i think think so so. two three five hundred yeah it's more like 500 pages that sounds more like it (laughs) this is three novels in one should have been a trilogy hugo well thank you listeners for joining us and please do join the conversation on facebook we would love to hear from you and until we meet again online my friends bon appetit Bon appétit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.